when you begin to interview them at 12 or 13, they tell you about a lot of love that they have for their friendships. They talk about wanting that kind of intimacy with other boys. I think friends are the things that kept me composed in the hardest times that I had. As boys got older, they began to tell a very different story. They'll say things like, uh, no homo in response to a question about intimate friendships. That question to them has now become a gay question rather than a question about just their friendships, which is how they heard it when they were 13 or 14. No homo was used a lot among my straight friends. Because of we don't want to seem as if we're being uh, gay towards each other or saying gay terms. That reveals the culture because the fact they're equating friendship with gayness is a part of American culture of masculinity. Somehow to be a boy, to be, grow into a man, you have to be emotionless. There's a growing but silent epidemic affecting middle-aged adults that has debilitating mental and physical effects. And that's emotional isolation. And those effects are being felt by men most of all. According to some experts, the trend begins in junior high. I've been studying social emotional development for about almost 30 years, <laughs> interviewing boys about their relationships, their friendships, um, the kinds of things that are important to them. As a developmentalist, I, I follow them over time. Middle adolescence, early middle adolescence, they tell you about a lot of love that they have for their friendships. They're very, very clear about their desire for emotionally intimate male friendships. The best friend for me is usually someone that I can talk to, be relaxed with, chill, but I would also like a best friend to be communicative. Like we also have to tell each other and be honest with each other on what we think of ourselves or like any topic, you know? We had a very close relationship, me and my friends. We shared secrets with each other and talked very intimately with one another. I would say that, yeah, we loved each other, yeah. As boys got older, they began to tell a very different story. So they really articulate that the, the, um, the bizarre expectations we have of boys as they get older, that they should disconnect from their innate emotional acuity, their emotional sensitivity, uh, in order to become a man. When he was in high school, Professor Wei gave a guest lecture at Vinnie's school, and her findings matched exactly what Vinnie was experiencing with his friends. Not only did like our conversation start to change, we hung out and, and didn't really talk all that much. I spent a lot of time alone, or when I was with my friend, it still kind of felt like being alone. But there was a time where I was completely isolated. Isolation is devastating for everybody. This findings that isolation is a huge predictor of all sorts of problem, health problems. Smoking, uh, you know, more than a pack of cigarettes a day is equivalent in terms of what it does to your health. And that isolation is growing in men. In 2000, 20% of Americans reported feeling lonely. In 2010, that rate had grown to 37% for men. The stereotype of being a man, he's supposed to um, be stronger than everyone. He's supposed to like be uh, the best. I was being told a lot to start growing up, becoming a man, a mature individual who's a male shouldn't show their emotion. That's like a sort of like a stereotype that you're supposed to like not share feelings you're supposed to show strength, you're supposed to show intellectual uh, knowledge that is greater than any other. Boys have like a sort of competition with each other. The pressure to act a certain way can be hard at times uh, and to feel like you're not, you're maybe not doing things right or you're never going to be uh, a real man or a man's man. 
being a teenager, you're, you're like supposed to, you're, you keep your feelings to yourself, and it kind of causes like a, sad, a lot of sadness, depression. The culture has created the problem, right? The culture of hypermasculinity that we've created, we as people living in this culture have created, we've taken basic human capacities, which is to think and to feel, and we've given them a gender, and we've made thinking into a masculine thing and feeling into a feminine thing, um, which doesn't make any sense because all humans think and feel, right? But we've gendered them, uh, and we've reinforced that gender. We're told to live a kind of uh, incomplete human experience where we're only thinking or we're only feeling. They're disconnecting from a core part of their humanity. We're born human <laughs> and we're born with the capacity and the need to connect to others and to have community and have positive relationships and then we raise boys in American culture to disconnect from that need, to pretend they don't have it, to pretend they're not emotional, to basically fake it, to fake that they're not fully human. I think this, the boys tell us the story. They tell us the in, entire story of what happens. They begin to enter into a culture that asks them to disconnect from the very things they need the most to thrive. Certain people are gonna really expect you to act a certain way or act in a way that kind of embodies those uh, cultural norms. I sort of came to this realization that you don't necessarily have to play by those rules. What's important is how we define ourselves as, as men and what manhood means in America. We need to do everything we, we can in schools, in workplaces, in the neighborhood, every moment of life from the first day of life to the end of life. We need to be nurturing those capacities and nurturing those relationships. Really listen to yourself and listen to what you're feeling and talk about how you're feeling with your family or with your friends. I want to just say that it's never too late to, to open up to anyone, no matter what your age is. If we get back to listening to 13 and 14 year old boys, they offer us the solution. They reveal that we are human and boys are human and they have the enormous capacity to be connected to their feelings. Do men buy pillows? Happy New Year. <laughs> Let's get those resolutions rolling, right? Uh, my New Year's resolution is to just set goals. I think when I have a when I have made a resolution in the past, I would do it for about a month or so, and and then it just tails off, and I'm back doing my regular routine. So my goal this year is to make good habits. Usually when I get off work, I pick up my daughter from the babysitter or from school. I come home, depending on how I'm feeling, I grab a cup of coffee or you know, snacks or some, some type of food. I talk to the lady, mess with the kids. Then I go back and I play video games for a couple hours. It's like my therapy. I'm lost in my imagination, at least that is what I try to do. But mostly I think about what needs to be done. Work-related stuff, relationship stuff. I pretty much ignore anything outside this room. But I'm realizing that accomplishing things is, is it's also therapy. <laughs> 
like chores. Seriously, I don't like doing them, but when I start, I get addicted and there's not one thing that needs to be done. You know, I'll start loading the dishwasher as I'm loading the dishwasher. Uh, I'm doing stuff with the babies or the babies notice me and they want something like milk or snacks. When I open up a cabinet or a fridge, I notice things just aren't in the, in the right place because I'm going to look for food for them. And I notice that, you know, something might be expired. So then I, I, I pull out, you know, a thing of old cheese. And I pull it out of the fridge and I put that in the trash. And I've done that a few times now. So now the trash is full. So I have to take it out. You know, I take the trash out, come back in. <laughs> uh, you know, I need a new trash bag. So I go to the utility room where I keep where we keep our trash bags. I grab one. I peek it to the garage. You know, the, the, um, the, in our utility room, there's a door that separates our garage from our utility room. <laughs> um, but, you know, like Jen has made our garage out to be this, like, large dumping ground for boxes and large, you know, big garbage. So now I'm cleaning the garage until I hear a baby cry. and have to come back into the house. They want food because that was the initial thing that I was supposed to be doing was to get them food. And then I guess I'm hungry. Now I'm making food and finishing up the dishes that I started in the first place. It seems like it's stress, but it's not. You know, my body's moving. I'm getting things done. And in the process, I'm either in my thoughts, listening to music or podcasts, and I'm interacting with my kids. So hashtag goals. Speaking of which, is there any man out there that doesn't do or have days similar to this? No, today the title of my podcast today was "Do Men Buy Pillows?" And it's a funny question. And I'm, I'm having a conversation a while ago during during a break, and the phrase "toxic masculinity" came up. And before going, I'm not a psychologist or a therapist or any kind of emotional doctor. You know, all the views I express are purely mine. My opinion, my outlook, all mine. I'm never here to offend anyone, but a quote that I really like from a man that I, I really respect, you know, based on his views, uh, his name is Jordan Peterson, but he says, if you state your opinions, you're going to offend people. And that's true. But this phrase came up, toxic masculinity. I don't like the phrase. I think it it's it was put together for two purposes. To destroy masculinity and how people in general view men. So how do you trust information? Not like the media, even though you shouldn't trust them at all. But you as a person, how do you trust information? You know, for example, if a well-known video gamer uh, decides to write a book or an article about how video games destroy relationships, 
or a lawyer writes a, a, a book about, you know, lies told in a courtroom to win cases. Or a psychologist writing about why do women shot more than men? Because of their areas of expertise, how likely are you to believe them? And each of those people have background knowledge. You know, they have anecdotal evidence, probably some real research. And it's, like I said, the area of expertise. You can read those books or articles and believe it. And it, and it could be true. And if I read any of those books, I would believe them. But because I believe it, is it true? You know, I'm not making this philosophical. But video games could ruin a relationship. But it also could save one. You know, something that they could do together. Or if you have trust issues, so you buy more games for your man, at least you know he'll stay home. <laughs> I bet I bet there are lawyers who have lied to win cases. But one could argue that not all lawyers have poor integrity and use lies to win. We all know women shop more than men. But if I were an extreme radical leftist, I would say you're placing gender roles or there are no gender you know, roles. So I don't believe it could be it could be argued. Uh, so some instances of truth can just be what you believe it to be. If that makes sense. I say this because people believe toxic masculinity to be true. Doctors and others have written and spoken on it. And I don't believe it to be true. Or I don't believe it to be a way to describe the, the average Joe. So let's start with toxic. What does toxic mean in the phrase toxic masculinity? Toxic rec represents malicious or extremely harsh. So masculinity or masculine is the quality of the male sex or men. Then you put the two words together, toxic now has two meanings. The second meaning is infectious or poisonous. So malicious and harmful men who are contagious and poisonous to other men. That's, that's what I get from it. The term toxic masculinity was, was coined by the author Shepard Bliss. And I didn't, I didn't know much about him. And for a long time, I thought that the phrase was used by women, specifically radical feminists, uh, to describe men. Honestly, I'm, I'm thinking, why would someone use this to describe men? But as I go on to Google not too long ago, thinking I would find evidence to support my claim, you know, that that a, a, a strong feminist coined the term, I came across Shepard Bliss. Who is he? Shepard Bliss was a gay psychology professor at John F. Kennedy University in California. Who would have thought? And you think I'm saying this as a negative thing. I'm just pointing out the fact that I, that I made 
earlier. A gay man is writing about masculinity, but happens to be a psychologist. So you could trust this information because he's a psychologist, but he could be one-sided it because he's a gay man. So it's kind of a catch-22. But he made the term. He made up the term. And the timeline for this was called Mythopoetic Men's Movement. Um, I didn't make this up. It was because gender roles were changing. Another term that I hate, gender roles. And that's for another day. But this idea that gender roles were changing, to me, from my understanding, was false. Yes, more and more women were entering the workforce. But men aren't staying home raising children. They're not cooking and cleaning or whatever other stereotypical ideas that come from the stay-at-home wife or mom. So gender roles are changing false. However, men had to change their language and actions now having to share their workspace with women. And this took place like, uh, I think the late 60s, 70s, 80s, where, you know, women started to, you know, start to work. So I will defend Bliss in the case because my perception, perception of that time was that guys talked about money, cars, and women. You know, how much money they can make or what kind of car they could drive or what kind of car they can own and what kind of woman they could sleep with. Or what ideas they had of women. So Bliss' idea was to get you to be mindful of those things so that you could create a, a, I want to say, like safe work environment for both men and women. So women can feel comfortable around men without being seen as objects and men can be more respectful. Anything outside of that for this idea is crap. You know, we they talk about some of the things that toxic mas- masculinity promote. You know, you know, one of the things like, does anyone like to cry in front of people? Does anyone like to feel vulnerable to other people? Do we trust everyone or anyone with our feelings? I think people are are afraid of a person's perception of them. So vulnerability shows weakness. And don't get me wrong, at the same time, it shows strength. Let me explain. Being vulnerable is giving a person the power to be harmful to to you emotionally. Once you become vulnerable to someone and they have and they abuse your vulnerability, it's hard to show vulnerability to anyone again. So some trust easier than others, but for the most part, people build walls. You know, after showing your vulnerability to someone and they help or accept it, you feel better and more confident with knowing this person knowing your weakness. I think I think it shows strength. One of the one of the movies I used to watch a long time ago, uh, Meet Joe Black, and, and Brad Pitt is playing the, the character of death, and he's talking to one of the people um, that's married to the rich man's, he's married to the rich man's daughter. And he describes his wife as, she knows the worst thing about me, and it's okay. And it was just a statement. It wasn't a specific thing. So because all, we all have many vulnerability, vulnerabilities, because we are human, 
some are for friends, some are for special people. So you ever notice how your circle gets smaller the older you get? But that too is for another day. So here's something in my life. My father, a great man, I would say is homophobic. <laughs> but this man is affectionate, loving. You know, when he sees me, he hugs me, he kisses me every time. You know, I know he believes that men can be vulnerable and show emotion to other men, you know, to appreciate men and still not be gay. He hugs, he kisses, he kisses my kids. He's just that kind of a guy. You know, my father, my father hugs his friends, his family members. He'll express his love in front of anyone at any time. So how do you think my brothers and I express ourselves? You know, I hug and kiss all my kids. I express my care for other people regardless of their sex. You know, just saying. The funny thing is, my mother is actually the less affectionate person. So she tells us all the time we were there. The reason why she hugged and kissed, because that's, you know, that's what we wanted to do to her. So, uh, but when my brothers were growing up, when my brothers were growing up, we, we were picked on. You know, my twin and I were kind of undersized. I always tell people, I would, I, would, I would be taller if I didn't have to share the womb, you know, with him. But it's just a, it's just a silly joke. Uh, my younger brother, who was not a big guy, was a little sh- short and chunky guy. So, um, but two things. One, because my twin brother and I were picked on so much that my parents taught us to stand up for ourselves. Let me say this. Girls, for some reason, when I was in school, were taller than us, and they were taller than a lot of boys. So I was bullied by girls too. So don't think this is just a boys thing. But I couldn't hit them. I never saw my dad hit my mother without being told not to hit girls. It was just something I I observed. So I just let these girls beat me up. You know, my mother was more thorough with details about defending myself. She has this, this secret violent person hitting her body, and when you get her mad enough, this little monster came out. And it took a lot, but she was like Mama Hawk. And I remember telling her, telling, I remember her telling me after my brother and I were getting jumped after school constantly, uh, she said, <laughs> she said, you take off running, both of you. You run as fast as you can. And now, now all of them are going to chase you. But the one who does, you find something on the ground, like a brick or a rock. And you turn around and you hit them. And when they're on the ground, you keep kicking and punching until the others can't catch up. Uh, until the others catch up. And then you do the same thing all over again. <laughs> and, you know, my dad would say stuff like, you know, if one of you fights, you all fight. Either both of you get beat up or you don't come home. You know, he meant like if my brothers, my brother was fighting and I didn't jump in, I was in trouble. But you can see the difference between uh, a woman's perspective on how to defend myself and a man's perspective. You know, like it's, it's, it's you know, it's how we're, it's how we are. Uh, the second thing 
We we picked on my younger brother, my twenty nine. And he may not remember, but he used to be a little punk. You know, as kids, for some reason, we just we just hit first when we were upset. You know, my kids are bullies. If another kid takes something from my youngest daughter or son, they do what it takes to get it back, and then they'll try to beat beat your kid up just cause. <laughs> I know they 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 aren't they aren't the only two year olds that do it, and then they're not the only kids that do it. So I've witnessed other kids do it. So my brother did something I didn't like. My little big brother, I would hit him more. I start beating him up. And the thing that would make me so upset before he actually started fighting back, he would cry and go tell. That would make me want to beat him up even more. One, for being a punk. Two, for not standing up for himself. And three, since he's telling him about to get in trouble, I might as well make it worth it. But older siblings help make kids tough. Or bullies, one or the other. So... Is being tough a bad thing? The world will always have bad people, you know, criminals, bullies, uh, people on a power trip, you know, unethical co-workers, poor customer service that won't allow you to get money taken off the bill because they don't have towers in no man's land, so they charge you for roaming fees. The Clintons. We have to stand up for ourselves and have some grit and toughness. Parents. What trait do you use to stand up for your kids? Uh, I composed a little list after reading a few articles, listening to listening to some podcasts, watching some videos, uh, just looking up things for myself. And I and I I got like eight things on this list um, of toxic masculine traits, and then phrases or terms that represent toxic masculinity. Um. The list is about nine things. And we when I say them, you should just think about what they represent to you or what they mean to you. I'm going to go down the list and then I'm going to just say how I don't think it has anything to do with toxic masculinity. Uh, the first thing is be the best or be stronger. Competition. Toughness, homophobic, unemotional, you know, phrases like boys will be boys or being a man's man, misogynist, violence. I don't even know where to start, but I will say being the best isn't a masculine trait. You know, if you have good parents or positive people in your life, you've probably been told to be the best you can be, you know, be the best, be the strongest. Strong being mentality, not physical. If you're always striving to be the best amongst your peers and siblings, this itself creates competition. And competition creates the best out of people. Toughness. Well, toughness isn't how well you fight. Toughness is a mindset of eagerness and mentality capable of getting something done. It also allows you to stand up for yourself and people who are 
not as capable of doing it. You know, think about starting a business. There are some obstacles with that that come with it. There's a slow period where you find where you have to create the demand for whatever you sell or provide. So how do you get through it? Got to be tough. You know, think about the athlete that has taken on a, a severe injury and needs to have the mental toughness to get back to what they were before the injury. Homophobic or homophobia. Let me say this. I am not gay, nor do I have a problem with gay people. However, I don't want to be gay and I don't want any man brushing up against me in any form that represents him expressing his attraction to me. Now I've gone to gay bars and I've been around gay people. I'm not scared of them. But why is arachnophobia scared of spiders? Or claustrophobia, the fear of enclosed areas, agoraphobia, fear of not being able to escape, mysophobia, or jomophobic, the fear of germs. All of these phobias are just are described as irrational and fearful. However, when when we say homophobia, why is it defined as dislike or prejudice against gay people? It's like they changed the meaning of this word just to fit an agenda. You know, I don't want my kids to be gay. I don't. I have this idea that one day I will walk with my daughters down the aisle to their husbands. You know, they'll give me grandchildren and I'll be able to spoil their children and hear them say, you didn't spoil us like that. So I don't dislike gay people, nor am I afraid of them. But because I don't want my kids to be gay, I'm homophobic. I don't know. Unemotional. I'm a very emotional person. (laughs) I've cried during movies. And I, I don't like crying. I don't like crying during movies. But I also don't like that I always feel the need to help people. But it's just something I do. And I'm not the only man that does it. I remember attending a friend's uh, wedding this past summer. And the man who was marrying my friend and his wife was the bride's father. During his speech, he said some things that I am emotionally connected with. And I'm sure it was, he was connected with a lot of fathers and the with daughters and the or, or sons in the audience. And he was talking about how much his daughter needed him in his life. You know, she needed him to feed her, to change her diaper, to love her, to hold her. Then he goes through the story of independence. And at each step, she needed him less and less. But allowing that growth and not holding her back allowed her to mature and and encourage her relationship with Christ. So she grew into this 
outstanding young lady and was able to pick a man who was just as spiritual and strong as her now husband. And it got me all fuzzy and feeling inside. <laughs> you know, knowing that my relationship with my daughter is similar to that, and hopefully it would be like that in the future. So men are emotional. Boys will be boys. You know, that term represents the way young men act when they are being immature or childish or mischievous. It is what it is. You know, think about the crazy things you know more men to do than women. And men do some shit. <laughs> you know, I think of the <clears throat> I think of the show Jackass or Pranksters. These are men definitely examples of boys being boys. They aren't hurting anyone and they're, and they're having a lot of fun doing it. Violence. Now, I, I do some research, but I'm purely going on observation for this one. Both men and women have aggression. Men tend to use their use violence to express their get aggression. And women, well, they are more devious and patient. You know, they'll get you back somehow. A guy will fight another guy, typically over a woman for example, but a woman will scratch up your car or somehow find something you care about and destroy it. So aggression is a thing, but men have to find a way to express their aggression. You know, how about how, almost every species in the world, the males defend their territory and women. They are the defenders of the land. More men go to war than women. So our, our idea used to be protect women and children. So why did God make men bigger and more muscular than women? And if you're a science junkie, why do men produce more testosterone than women? Why do men play more sports than women? Why do men, why do more men like sports than women? Now, there, there are those few and far between men who don't care for sports, and there are women who still love to play and watch sports. But for the most part, men tend to be the fans of violence and sports. Is violence necessary? I think so. Wars, tension, or, or it's a good stress reliever, you know, protection from criminals. I don't know. Which brings me to my last thing. A man's man. You know what I think a man's man is? When a guy who is married with children, having trouble with his home life, and he's about to choose to step out on his significant other. He knows it's wrong. But a man's man would be the guy saying, it ain't worth it. A man's man picks up the pieces and reminds men that they are men and should always do the right thing. Men who perpetuate misogyny, or misogyny, domestic violence, 
or unnecessary violence, cowardness, a man who doesn't take on his responsibility, a man who, who doesn't take care of their women and children or protect them. Those men aren't masculine at all. They are, they are toxic men, but they are not contagious. The men I have some that I have surrounded myself with take care of their children. They show decency to women. You know, they still got some learning to do. They do not promote any negative things that come along with toxic masculinity. So think of all the men you have come across. Do they possess these characteristics? And if so, do you still surround yourself with them? The man's man is successful in all aspects of life, job, security, family, religion. That there is contagious. So, do men buy pillows? Only if they have to. Till next time, guys.